This hour is brought to you by Illinois Bone and Joint Institute. So before we get to the end of the uh, Jim Bayheim era, quick correction here. I'm wrong. Angela Bassett did not win the Oscar. She was nominated, I, right? I, I, I presume she had won. I, I, I misremembered, as Roger Clemens once said, that she won for What's Love Got to Do With It. She was nominated, but Holly Hunter won that year for the piano. Oh, so I'm, I'm back be, be having to... Yeah. Yeah. Having it, having, I'm going to have a, a tussle here. You know, one of my favorites is going to lose yep. and won't have an Oscar. Make that choice. Going to have to do that now. So I just want to thank you to the texters who pointed that out. And also to the texters who said, well, what about that Layla story? I've got it, and I'll do it tomorrow. So one more day, you're going to have to wait. 48-hour tease. For the story. Yeah, we turned a 24-hour tease into a 48-hour tease. But uh, I, I, I will do that one tomorrow it's probably better as a, a friday high noon anyway Not penis man. <laughs> stop it is that that that's right but but stop and now and now i've actually looked at it what she was talking about and it, it's quite a thing well figuratively and literally. no yeah both no really uh so jim Beheim, that was so weird yesterday where Everybody's been asking him, are, are you retiring this year? Well, I don't know. I might. I might not. I might not talk to the university. I don't know. And then he kind of said that he did retire and nobody knew. And then the university sent a press release saying he's not the coach anymore. I'm not going to work here anymore. And without any quotes from him. Right. In, in the press release that they sent out. But let's go back. Like They lose in the ACC tournament and it hasn't been a good year. For, for the Orange, and honestly, if you look at the last decade of Syracuse basketball, it hasn't lived up to the same standard that it had before that. This was the really strange confrontation in the press conference about whether or not he is still the coach or even wants to be the coach. Oh, but uh, I've just been lucky to be able to coach this long. I think you missed it. <clears throat> I gave my retirement speech on the court last Saturday, and I gave it in the press conference afterwards, and nobody except William Payne figured it out. And are you saying right now that you're, you're going to retire? This is up to the university. You, you want to come back? I didn't say that. Uh, okay, but, so what are you saying? You're not saying you're retiring, but you're not I just saying- said it. I don't know. So you don't know, okay? I said this is up to the university. And you, you're not sure whether you're when will you, when will how will you make a determination about when you will come back? You're talking to the wrong guy. <laughs> what just happened there? <laughs> By the way, who is who's the reporter? Because she's great, fantastic. That is outstanding. Who is that? I don't know because that you're talking about someone like. Just what the hell? Right. Like she she is this close to being like, would you stop it? Like so annoyed. And 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 for good reason, annoyed. What do you mean you gave your retirement speech last week? And only and then, and then you're chastising people for for not realizing that you gave your retirement. What is this? Some sort of cryptic code? Yeah, and then when asked if you were retired. The answer is it immediately yes because I gave a retirement speech. It's oh, it's up to the university. You're talking to the wrong guy. The hell? Okay. So 
Dan, this has been, and, and you know, Beheim has always been taciturn, but taciturn. He's, that, that that's a compliment to say he's taciturn. This year, this year, he's been bizarre in some of the things that he's had to say, and it just continues this line of old old school coaches who are either at the end or can see the end or can't make the adjustment to how the world has changed and how the power dynamics have changed and they're they're jousting you know like they 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 don't know how to give up the power and do it gracefully so they're all it's it's like all of them are being like wrestled away with it and they're they're all oh, this is terrible and this is not the way that it should be and I'm walking out the door cuz because I may be retired or they're going to retire me or something or other. You figure it out and get William Payne on the line. He'll tell you what happened. Why? Why not have just a modicum of grace here at the end of it all? It's just not in his nature. It really isn't. And I, I leave it to the great Ray Ratto. Ray Ratto. The Ratto to sum it up in, on Defector.com. Jim Beheim played his hand too well, as it turned out. Even the most sympathetic of views afforded him as he was shown the door he was marching toward at Syracuse allowed that his departure slash dismissal ruined the sympathy he might otherwise garner. By adhering too devotedly to his public image as the guy who lived almost eight decades on an all-lemon diet. Mm. And he, his closing graph, he said, whatever Beheim's inner qualities, which were assured by his hagiographers, were evident to those who knew him well, he remains steadfast in keeping his circle tight and probably too tight. Unless he's one of those rare figures who genuinely doesn't care how he's portrayed by an industry that defines good and evil with the same yard-wide roller, he'll end up marked as we've marked him here, as the guy who needed you to think the worst of him because his contempt for you included your judgments. Maybe there's a level of satisfaction in that for him, but if he wants something that values him more highly than the send-off he gave himself, that ship may have sailed. Bob Knight went the same way and will always be thought of as less than he should have been. If reputations matter, Jim Beheim sold his cheaply. And if he was trying to make the point that those who make those reputations are untrustworthy agents of caricature, he still let them define him without putting up enough of a fight. Beheim is, in the end, what he decided to tell us he was. It was either a very small victory or a sizable defeat. That is fantastic from Ray Ratu. Ray Ratu. That's, that is really, I mean, it's just, if, that's, if that's what he wanted, if that's what he wanted to, to be, fine. I, I'm not going to, it doesn't bother me. I don't care. I, I, I was only around him professionally, and he, he was just that at all times. I, I do wonder, like, because obviously it's tremendous success. Like, getting anyone to come play basketball in Syracuse, New York, is is a major victory. And sure, you know, you're playing a style that some people say is is pretty close to cheating by playing a two three zone, uh, even though the the rules allow for it. And it's weak. It is not basketball, but whatever. You you have the success. You're there for five decades. You know, like fifty years. You're, you're there at that place, and you never, ever seemed happy. And it, it leads me to wonder, when we're talking about college athletics, 
of course, all of these universities would like to have coaches who are raising the level of play, whatever they're doing, whether we're talking women's basketball, football, whatever. You, you want a, a high quality of play. But I also wonder if there are people that, that work in on the scholastic side of universities that are like, they shouldn't have that much power. Now, look, I know that this is a, a really old reference, but one that is, is close to home because it happened in Chicago. One of the reasons that the University of Chicago which was a football mm-hmm. powerhouse. Yep. Like they were the Miami of the the early aughts. You know, like they were that. Amos Alonzo Stag had so much power that by the time where did he end up going? Pacific? By the time that he left for Pacific, the, the academics over there were already like, you know what? We're never letting that happen again. We're never gonna let a a football coach or a coach take over what the the idea and ideal of this university is, they shut down football for 30 years. Like, just shut it down. Now, I don't think that anyone that's doing Division One sports like that is going to do that, but I, I often wonder how much power is too much power. And when the folks at the on the academic side look at it and go, you better be producing at a high level to be this type of jackass. And do we want that even if that person wins? And what what is the benefit of the university to have one of those people, in some cases, be the highest paid state employee and be the front person for your university? It just... I was reading an account at Syracuse.com, and one of the paragraphs that Donna DeTota wrote was, in a fascinating, bewildering post-game question and answer period, Beheim sounded very much like a man who might like to retire, but doesn't know what his employer might have in store for him. Well, now he does. Get your ass out. Well, well wait a sec. Those... Those don't have anything to do with one another. If you're retiring, it doesn't matter what your employer has in store for you. Right. I don't understand that sentence. Well, I mean, but that's... You like to how, retire, retire. Right. That, But the problem is that Beheim allows for there to be some confusion because he says, I gave my retirement speech. And then Are says you retired? And then says it's up to the university. What's right. up to the university if you've retired? Nothing's up to them. And and they're and the way that they announced that Adrian Autry was taking over smacked of exasperation. It did. It smacked of exasperation and exclusion. Like we are not even really going to talk about you. You're not going to be quoted in this. We're just going to move on to the next thing. And if you now, wanted the send-off, if you wanted the rocking chairs and the speeches and the gifts and the whole thing, you announce your retirement before the season begins, and then you have your valedictory tour. And I, and I think that people would have done that for him. And I'm not the biggest Coach K fan, but I do think that he got that part of it about right. Maybe not perfect but about right. And for the most part, he stayed away from Duke. There was the, he showed up for Mike Bray's game, 
because obviously one of his loving assistants, but he's kind of stayed away. And and I feel like I feel like Jim Beheim's going to be like Ryan Pace at Syracuse. Just going to be peeking in and seeing, do they miss me yet? Am I finally missed? Well, the difference is he really lives there. Like and 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 the fact is he he likes Syracuse. He never wanted to leave. I think it was Ohio State that came in in the mid-80s and put a big number in front of him and thought they had him and he he genuinely likes it there. So he's going to be around in the spring and summer. Well, I think he said what was his line that he wouldn't want to be in Hawaii because Syracuse is enough like Hawaii in the summer or something like that. No, in the spring and summer you be there. You don't want to be there no, in the fall and winter. I don't think he cares. I, I, he's, I don't, you'll see him at games is what I'm saying. He'll be looming over whoever the next coach is, whether it's in an official capacity or an unofficial capacity. I, he has never expressed a desire to, to move to Arizona. I guess, I guess that when you've been there that long and maybe the people that you started with or you, you built the legacy with, have retired or died or moved on to other things that you're stuck having to defend your legacy. And I, if I'm trying to see it from Bayheim's perspective, that's got to be difficult when you're the guy that's kind of built out the university to a certain extent and you you feel like you're not getting the, the requisite respect back, but still like, it's hard for me to have sympathy for him because he's such a sourpuss, as Ray Ratu put it. I think, too, that the overall changes to the power structure and the empowerment of players, if the side effect is that we don't begin to encourage and empower the builders of fiefdoms again, if that aspect of the game is over and coaches can get back to... Being coaches and not necessarily having being to deify, yeah, have to amass power and 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 be, be literally placed at the top of these giant buildings like Shashevsky was. That that I think that's just good for college sports to not to to not have an, an empirical system. It's that's good, yeah, and it feels like that. That's what it's been like. That's and that's what it is. And so when you see some of these guys complain, some of them some of them just walk away quietly. Jay Wright was just like, I'm out. Like, I'm going to go do something else because I can. I've proven everything that I need to prove at, at this. Maybe I don't like everything that's happening now, but I'm just going to leave. And, I, and I'm not going to leave where I'm, I'm out here just grumbling and yelling at clouds and jousting at windmills and all this stuff. I'll just leave. And with some of these other guys, it just feels like they there's a compulsion and they can't shake it and they can't stand it when their authority is challenged in whatever way that authority is challenged. Whether we're talking about players having a, an opportunity to, to get some money for themselves or the media pushing back on uh, um, not reaching high expectations – it's just that whole system, the, the way that college athletics has always worked, it has been um, an interesting 
evolution to watch. And now how it's going to change and how people react to it is is something that I don't know they were ready for. At least we know that that racist dill hole down in Lubbock stepped down. Yeah, that's that's good news. And and I I felt like he was going to go either way. Like that 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 was not even even in Lubbock, Texas. That was not going to be allowed to stand. But yes, him walking away is a very very good thing for college athletics and I don't know that that person should be coaching Anywhere. No, no, that that he's unfit. Now I I think he'll end up getting a job. He might end up end up getting a job with his old boss that had who was fired from his job. And was it old Miss might hire him now? Yep. And I would not be surprised if if Adams ended up on the bench with Chris Beard at Ole Miss. Would, would not surprise me either. When we come back, we have some baseball discussion scheduled with a smart baseball mind, that of Aram Layton who is the co-founder and executive editor at Just Baseball at JustBaseball.com. So uh, he's got thoughts, Cubs, Sox, and things next on The Score. Bernstein and Holmes, middays 10 to 2 on 670 The Score. Hang in there and ultimately get it out. In the air to right center, Pete Paul Armstrong trying to run it down. Dives. Oh, what a catch. What an amazing catch. That's the best one we've seen all spring by an outfielder by far. Wow. Just spectacular work. Good stuff from PCA. Get used to following his exploits in the minors, and there will be some more, I think, before the bat's ready for the majors. Here to talk Cubs and more with us as we look at some baseball is Aram Layton, who's on Twitter at Aram Layton, the numeral 8. He is the co-founder and executive editor at Just Baseball, JustBaseball.com, and he's with us on the Score Hotline, presented by Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. Aram, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. I'm always excited to talk Cubs. Well, thank you for joining us. I'd love to know what your perspective is on how, how well or not well the Cubs have rebuilt their farm system since winning the World Series. Yeah, I think over the last two years, they have really shifted the focus well. And I think they've hit really well on trades, drafted well. And then I think it's been the between the margin trades that, that have really kind of separated them as well. You look at, you know, picking up a Hayden Wisniewski, who looks like he could be a rotation piece for them this year. Who I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit further or getting a Ben Brown and it's a trade of David Robertson, who Ben Brown looks like one of the more exciting young arms in this system. Um, and then even getting a Matt Mervis in, in international free, or excuse me, undrafted free agency, um, and and convincing him and selling him on the organization because he had his pick of the litter of basically every single team wanting to sign him for the twenty thousand dollar minimum. So I think they've done all the little things really well. And then when you hit big on the PCAs, who you were just talking about, and some of the other more high profile guys, I think the system's in really good shape, and it's gone from one of the you know, bottom third in baseball, I think, to well inside the top third. We've talked a lot about their pivot to run prevention and what their whole organization is doing on every level with pitching and defense and positioning, et cetera. And we have discussed it, and we've discussed it intricately. What I want to know is, do we know why they made that pivot? Even for a team that plays in the park in which they play, and seeing what his what the larger trends have been in baseball, what do they think they're they're working ahead of by moving as they did to this model? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think that there's a lot more value being seen in, in the ability to, to defend, especially in the outfield. You look at a Pete Crow Armstrong, and um, you, you look at an example of, of someone who I think, you know, I had actually had the opportunity to speak to him and interview him on, on our podcast, and he, he mentioned Michael Harris being a guy that, you know, he likes to look towards and, and see what he does. I mean, Michael Harris is a guy that the Braves were okay with bringing up from double A because even if the bat didn't play right away, which it obviously did, um, they, they knew they were going to get value there in center field with the glove, with the speed, and, and anything you get with the bat is a bonus. So, of course, that's not always going to be the case at third base or first base, and uh, it's a little bit different at, at those positions where offense is a bit more premium. But I think in the areas where you know, we've seen maybe defense be overlooked and value there be overlooked a little bit, uh, I think teams are really finding a lot of, of value and, and a lot higher success rate in converting those prospects, right? It's a lot easier to see center field defense translate to the big leagues. It's really hard to, to fully, with 100% confidence interval, figure out who's going to be able to hit at the big league level. How many guys have we seen mash in the upper minors and just not quite make that, you know, not quite translate to the big league level? The glove always seems to translate. Aram, how would you describe the Cubs offseason this year? Ah, that's a great question. I think in, in some ways it was fascinating. I, I think in a lot of ways it was informative that, you know, they are ready to start to be competitive soon. I, I really liked, you know, going to get a Dansby Swanson, even if he doesn't replicate what he did in a contract year. I think that, that was showing a willingness to, to spend immediately and, and try to, to expedite this, this rebuild, so to speak. And I think it's more of a restructure. And now all of the prospects that come up are complementary to the core that you have there. Um, but then you have some of the other moves that were a little bit head-scratching, like an Eric Hosmer when you have Matt Mervis kind of knocking on the door here and I think earned probably you know an opening day nod. But you know we'll see how that goes. And I like the pickup of Mantini, though, and I think overall, of course, Bellinger, a great bounce-back candidate. I thought it was a good balance of making the team better in the short term while also you know acknowledging that it's probably not all going to happen next year and, and you can try with a few other bounce-back candidates and kind of let those guys still develop and not totally block some of those prospects that are near, you know, almost ready. How would you construct the bullpen ideally? Oh, the bullpen. You know, I think they've done a good job. I really do because, you know, the the thing with the bullpen is it's so volatile, right? And if you're going to spend on the bullpen and not be, you know, a a playoff team, then it it seems like kind of a poor allocation of resources. I, I think that they've struck the balance and we just saw it right with Robertson again, referencing him a guy that not that many teams were desperately pursuing the, the Cubs get him. He, he starts to look a lot better and ultimately they end up trading him for, for a solid pitching prospect. I think the uh, approach of bounce back candidates like a, a Julian Merriweather, you know, like some of the other guys that we've seen them pick up. I think that's the best way to do it because you know, it, it's, it's such a year over year thing. And there, there's some special candidates that you lock up, but I think overall, I, I like the way that they're approaching it with bounce back guys and throwing as many irons into the fire as you can. And then just seeing how some of them shake out. Some guys aren't going to, you know, pitch to the, to the caliber that you were hoping some will, but I think they balance some, some volatility with some safe guys like a Brad Boxberger, like a Michael Fulmer, you know what you're getting with those guys, but I like the volatility of a Julian Merriweather who, if he is right, if he is what we've seen in the past, that's, that's closer stuff that you're also, you know, putting into the mix there as well. So I, I like the balance of high upside and, and also, you know, proven guys that are comfortable in the seventh and eighth inning, like Boxberger, Fulmer, and, and even a guy like, like Brandon Hughes in that. When we talk Cubs spring training, it is sponsored by Sloan, the official water efficiency partner of the Chicago Cubs. 
Dan and I were having a conversation. I forgot whose piece it was uh, that we were talking about pitching, and we were talking about how there are no pitching prospects and whether how how long is too long to keep a pitching prospect in the minors. Yeah, it was Joe Sheehan who was talking about the the end of the idea of the pitching phenom, right? And and how you're seeing we don't see a lot of young guys make it to the major leagues, and is that because of wanting to have more control over them? And in our front offices making mistakes are by not bringing up some of these younger guys earlier because of the inevitability of the arm injury. Yeah, I definitely think that we're seeing teams with a little bit more willingness. And I think this year would have been an example of that. And it might still be uh, with some of the more elite pitching prospects getting fast track there because you got to figure these guys have a finite amount of bullets in their arm. And, you know, some guys are, are a lot more durable than others. And uh, you can only tell so much by looking at their delivery, looking at how athletic they are. But even then, you know, you see some of the most athletic pitchers in baseball deal with injuries like uh, Jacob deGrom, for example. So, you know, I, I think we're seeing teams like the Phillies who uh, ironically were, were planning on giving Andrew Painter, one of the best pitching prospects in baseball, a look at 19, almost 20 years old to, to potentially break camp and, now he goes down with an elbow issue, so that's almost a microcosm of the question there. But Marlins, the Miami Marlins, have a wonderkin of a pitching prospect, a six foot eight Yuri Perez, who is also a teenager, and and they're considering bringing him up and putting him into the you know opening day rotation, or at least having him up pretty early in the year. Uh, and that's according to, to to Craig Mish and the Miami Herald. So th- there's a lot, I think, more pressure on these teams to get these guys up more, and I think the service time is becoming less important because. You want to get these guys up there while their arms are fresh, while they're, they're doing well, and also have them under surveillance of, you know, big league pitching coaches, big league front office, seeing them a little bit more closely, being able to monitor things. So I think we're going to see teams be a lot more aggressive with their pitching prospects as we move forward, and I think we're going to see those kinds of guys start to, to climb up the minor leagues a little bit quicker. Do you think the pitch clock plays to a better a manager from a catching perspective, like the for trusting to Barnhart and Gomes, the hard numbers really describe how good they are in you know catcher ERA, for example, and and, and the decisions that the Cubs made to go with these guys. Do you think that giving them the structured time to work with and the and the faster pace of the game is an increased advantage or a decreased one, or maybe a wash? Um, I think it might be a slightly increased one. You know, there's just with less time, you know, with with not having the comfort of being able to call timeout and have a conversation about everything. And I mean, how many times have, have you guys been at a game where it's like time for the second time in a row and they're going over the signs and, and you can tell there's just not a lot of synergy there between the battery uh, with the pitcher and catcher. I, I think just having the confidence and in a vet, you know, that, you know, you're not going to have to worry about those things should definitely help with the young pitchers. And I think that there's a level of that on, on the other side of things with young catchers kind of not getting fast tracked as much on the flip side of the pitching point we were talking about, you know, you have the Mets who have a super catching prospect in Francisco Alvarez, but they don't really want to throw him into the ringer here uh, with Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander and trying to handle the pitch clock, trying to handle pitch calm and trying to handle everything that comes with that. So I, I do think there's a level of comfort uh, that, that comes with uncharted territory here for some of these pitchers and, and having a veteran catcher should definitely help with that. Aram, you can take this either way or both ways in, in me asking the question, because I, I'd love to know what you would consider success 
for the 2023 Cubs. And, and that can be at the pro level or what they do with their prospects. Like how, how would you see and say that the Cubs had a successful year this year? Yeah, you know, I think when you are a team that's on the back end of this rebuild, you know, or, or restructure, whatever you want to call it, I think you want to see a game, right? 74 wins last year. Uh, I'm not saying you got to make the playoffs. Obviously, that's the goal. I think there's there's an outside chance that you can hope for with, with the expansion. But by the time you start checking off all of the playoff spots that some of the, you know, surefire teams, so to speak, are, are going to take, you realize that it's a lot of teams fighting for maybe one or two extra spots. I think just showing that there's a, a clear direction. And I think that's from top to bottom, right? You win eight eight more games. You, you're, you're closer to 500. Maybe you win 10 more games. You're above 500. You know, you, and simultaneously, you're seeing Pete Crow Armstrong, you know, climb his way up. You're seeing Brennan Davis look healthy and climb his way up. You're seeing Matt Mervis perform at the big league level. And I know that there's a lot of variables there, and there's only so much the team can control. But I think what they did on the big league roster size made it very clear this year. I really do believe that. I think they improved in their team. And if you can gain wins while also having your farm system, which I think there's a very clear plan there, top to bottom, and I like the way they're doing things, uh, continues to gain, uh, I think you're setting yourself up for not only you know, more immediate success, and, and maybe you look at two. I think Aram has uh, been fending off Cylon attacks. He, from, he was from, fighting from them from all like, angles. Could, I know you could hear it. And I he know was, like, fighting them. He was. And... He was turning around. Don't get cocky, kid. He was. You know, getting, it, that was that was a valiant effort. That really was. Morning, I mean, boys, that, what's going on? That, that is. I mean, we. It's one thing. Usually, the Cylon just take you out. Right. But 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 he was actually in it against them in a, in a full-on dogfight. Right, and giving us, like, really great stuff while also fighting them off. He was fantastic. Our arm Layton, like, we got to have him back on the yeah, show. Yeah, that was really that good. Was, that was top-notch Cubs stuff, like, actually getting into the weeds of how they can be good, when they can be good. So I'm trying to remember on Battlestar Galactica, the, the fighters were called Vipers, right? Mm-hmm. And it was Starbuck and Apollo. Was, Apollo is Richard Hatch's character. Okay, but it was, those were the Viper fighters in which they would do battle against the Cylons. But that was that was valiant. That was heroic. Hey, man, you know the, the, this is why you get the the good young pilots. They go out there and they're they're not right. scared to face the Cylons head up. Uh, we got some baseball stuff coming back. I think you had a little White I, Sox red flag. Look, man, I. I'm trying so hard, Ringo, to be the shepherd. Um, I, it's, it was a very small note, and I read it, and I was like, well, wait a minute. And then I started doing some math, and I'm not good at math, and I just want to be very clear that I'm not good at math. But the math ain't mathing for me. And I would like to talk about that as it pertains to one particular White Sox pitcher. All right. I also want to squeeze in some salient numbers that we're getting back from MLB spring training regarding the rules changes and what's oh, happening. Did you, did you find the BABIP? I, I, more. Oh. More. There's, I am intrigued. There's, there's a lot. So we, we can run through it real quick. Bernstein and Holmes, your midday destination for Chicago sports talk on 670 The Score. Kopech was uh, supposed to be ready for just about after the start of the season. Is there an update to that timeline? Uh, he's on pace for me. I haven't heard anything else from anybody. Uh, I saw him throw a live BP a couple days ago. He threw the ball extremely well. He's strong. Uh, 
ball was jumping out of his hand. He had a, you know, a, a nice slider, a good changeup. He's working on some things that I was really, really happy that um, that I saw them, and he felt good about it. Uh, he competed in the live BP, which is, you know, sometimes it's, it's tough to do, uh, but uh, he was he was excellent in my opinion. He's on pace. Uh, what? Huh. Okay, that was Pedro Griffel on pace for me. What does that mean? I, I, Dan, I don't know. He threw two innings of, of live BP, as Pedro Griffel said. But, um, and again, I, I have to preface all of this with I'm not good at math. Okay? Sorry. But I'm looking at the schedule. Today is the ninth, correct? T- today over at Camelback, the White Sox are going to play Team Columbia. Okay? Mm-hmm. Opening day is the 30th. Now, again, not great with math. That feels like three weeks. Right. Right? Now, he's not going to start opening day, but you would think that he would be somewhere in the rotation. Is is three weeks enough time for a guy who hasn't pitched in a game to be ready to pitch in a game? But then you take my 75% chance of winning... If we used to go one-on-one and then add 66 and two-thirds percent, I got 141 and two-thirds chance of winning at sacrifice. Scott Steiner's <laughs> right, and I do math probably as well as he does. Well, it's it, also- just does, it just doesn't seem like a guy who hasn't pitched in a game yet will be ready to pitch three weeks from now. Expectations are high here. Look. We're the fourth winningest franchise in the league since 2000. Ah. All right, that means in the upper quartile of winners, we're in the top quartile of that upper quartile. I don't know. It, it's weird. On pace for me, but it's not up to you. It's not about, uh, uh, well. I, I just, like, it was one of those things where, like, I saw the note, and I'm like, oh, he's, he's only pitched two innings of live BP. Hmm. That's not pitching. That's not pitching. That's not. I mean, I guess it it is working with the pitch clock and stuff, but um, I'm not waving a red flag yet. I'm just going. You're reaching your hand toward the red flag yeah, to I, to consider what you're 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 judging the proximity of the red flag in case you need to wave it. Dan, I've got a a. A whole container filled of White Sox red flags. Okay, and I'm reaching over. Got it. I'm. I'm just. I'm. I'm not in there yet, but I'm reaching over. I've got more numbers for you here. Okay, these from Jeff Passan comparing spring training 2022 to 2023. This is all games played, all teams. So this is a reasonable sample. Okay. Last year, time of game 3:01. This year. 236. Saucy. Saucy. Last year, runs per game, 10.6. This year, 11. Oh. Last year, stolen base attempts per game, 1.6. This year, 2.4. Hmm. Batting average on balls in play. Here we go. On ground balls. Last year, 235. This year, 320. 258. Oh, 258. Okay. Strikeout rate. Last year, 23.9%. I'm going to say up. This year, 23.1%. Oh, a little down. Down. More singles, more stolen bases, more runs, 
fewer strikeouts, and 25 minutes cut off games. Have you have you sat down and consumed a spring training product yet? Not entirely. I mean, here and there. I, I tuned in the Cubs the other day. I mean, I watched like an encore presentation. Yeah, I mean, it's I put it on. Yeah, like that's the thing. Like it's been, it's been on for me. I haven't had a real sit down with the games. Like it was, I was watch, I was watching Cubs yesterday, a little bit of that game, them against Team Canada, and obviously, like I've I've got a couple games that I'll be able to watch while I'm here. Um. I don't know if I've actually sat down to figure out whether I like this version of baseball or not. I, I I like the idea of the games being shorter, and I like that it won't be as much of a time suck as it's been over the last decade mm-hmm. with four-hour games in, in the American League. But I'm just wondering, will I find it appealing like, will, will the games be good enough that I find them appealing? Well, it, it sounds like, I mean, as like I say, I've watched minor league games with the clock, and it, it was great. I've watched full two full minor league games with the clock sitting in the stadium. And it was, it, the, the, the pace of it was, was notably amenable to the viewing experience. Okay. Here's some more numbers. This from Codify Baseball. Last year's spring training, 73% success rate when trying to steal on 1.12 stolen bases per game. This year, 1.87 steals per game, 81.1% success rate. Mm. That's above the number. They say about 75. Yeah, that's where it makes you it worth can, risking the out. It. I heard Billy Hamilton talking about this. Uh, he was on, on the White Sox Talk podcast, and he was saying how he feels like it's all green lights now for for him when he gets on base and the different different things that base runners are going to try to do to entice the throw the second over second throw over yes and 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 how you go about figuring out your lead knowing that you can get back but you want to see that so it, it's a part of the game where it's it's movement and action and that's something that baseball has been trying to get a little bit more of but I, I'm I'm curious to see how it all works out and whether or not the game is enjoyable. If it, it'll have the same level of enjoyment, even though like we can compl- and we complain, I think for different reasons. Like you know, you, there's all the stuff that we have to watch and you want to get it over with and get to bed. But I, I think your average fan is like, I want to get the hell out of here. You know, like, but is it good? And I don't. I'll I'll have a better sense of that tomorrow. Uh, like, because I'll be over at Cubs White Sox tomorrow. Oh, by the way, I I realized that our buddy Russ Dorsey is out here because the sun's out and the guns are out, so he's out here flexing. So he said that he would stop by the show tomorrow. Oh, cool! Because he's going to be at Cubs Sox. Perfect. So he'll come hang out. Perfect. We have Darnell Mayberry scheduled to join us next. The Bulls were awesome last night. They, they were. They really were. They were. That's that's it. That's what it's supposed to look like. And we've got the unfortunate news about Lonzo Ball needing another surgery. We'll talk all of it with Darnell next on the score.